you don't just go into business to make a dollar, but you, you go to, to win the hearts and minds of customers, to win the hearts and minds of employees. The true satisfaction of making a quarter, it doesn't last that long. The true satisfaction of your people being fired up, that's a whole different feeling. Culture is how we treat people. It just doesn't happen if there's not trust of the person that you work for and the people that you work with. We're in a human business. HR aside, HR software aside, we are in a human business. It's humans that actually make things happen. And so we should care about each other as humans. Everything is built upon a foundation of trust. That's it. You know, without trust, there is no innovation. There is no inclusion. There is no collaboration. There is no sense of belonging. There is no happiness. All these things that we say that we want. Welcome back to The Era, a podcast about putting your people first. I'm your host, Brad Wrencher, and this is the final episode of our pilot season. It's been a journey, one where we've met and interviewed pioneers of the employee experience era. The discussions have been insightful and inspiring, and we're grateful for all the many guests and thousands of listeners who have joined the conversation. Today, we present Bamboo HR's final value, the one that brings it all together, do the right thing. Backed by popular demand are Bamboo HR co-founders Ben Peterson and Ryan Sanders with some backstory around Do the Right Thing. Then we wrap up with Great Place to Work's CEO Michael C. Bush, whose perspective is both insightful and fitting for the era's overarching theme of employee experience. Here's part one, coupons. When you're bootstrapping a business like we did, you know, for the first three years, not taking a paycheck, living off of your savings, you know, my wife's literally clipping coupons, extreme couponing from the get-go. Here's Ryan Sanders, chief product officer and co-founder of Bamboo HR. He and Ben Peterson founded Bamboo HR together in 2008 with their own dollars. And today's topic, do the right thing, has played a key role in how they were able to grow Bamboo HR into what it is today without significant fundraising. I remember this time early on when I come home and Lori's got all this food and all these things, supplies or whatever on the kitchen table. And she says, guess, guess how much, how much that cost? And I'm thinking, gosh, there's gotta be $120 worth of stuff sitting on the table. I said, but I knew she was couponing. So I'm like, I'll bet it's $50. I'll bet it's $50. She said, no, not even close. I kept trying to guess at the end, it was 75 cents. She spent, got $120 worth of stuff, 75 cents. I got down on my knee and, and said, Lori, will you marry me? And the kids are just laughing. Dad, you're already married to her. But there was just this, you know, she was in it with me as we were trying to build this thing, being really, really thoughtful about those dollars because dollars weren't coming in. That thoughtfulness that Ryan mentions is real. It's a key component of Bamboo HR's success. And one of the things that drew me personally to join Bamboo HR on their journey. Being exceptionally thoughtful is a key ingredient to doing the right thing. And I think it's important to understand how that set the stage for Bamboo HR's success as an industry leader and game changer in the SaaS community. Here's Ben, Ryan's co-founder. There's this thing that we like to say at Bamboo HR, you know, best principles, not best practices. Everyone has this idea of what things are supposed to be like because they read it. Or, hey, here's a white paper on doing it this way. The idea is, you know, you go to, you go to business school or you meet people like, oh, go raise a bunch of money, go spend it, and grow, 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 grow as fast as you can and sacrifice profitability for growth because growing is what matters. And it's like, well, who said? Who said that? Why did they say it? And why did that work for them? 
So we've just tried to just challenge everything and make sure that we're making the right decisions and that they're principle-based, not practice-based. Because someone else said that you should do it. Well, why? Why did they say you should do that? And what experiences are they having and how does that work for them? Because, yeah, does it make sense to make to, to raise money? Sure, sometimes. Did it make sense for us? No. We didn't want to build that way. We didn't want to sacrifice those things early on. And we didn't need to. And yeah, it was painful, man. I mean, we talk about the law of threes when you do a startup. Three times as long, three times as hard, and three times as expensive. And it probably should be five times. Um, but we we didn't want to give up control of something we wanted to build. Yeah, could we have grown faster and, and maybe been flashier and looked like we made a lot more money? Sure. But we wouldn't be where we are today. Not at all. This is a podcast about the employee experience. So why are we talking about how a company was funded? You might be asking what that has to do with creating a great culture. Ben just talked about the thoughtful and deliberate decision to not take on vast amounts of funding. Well, in short, that choice to do what was right for Bamboo HR has allowed us to have the flexibility to focus on what matters most. Focus and, and trade-offs are one of, my, one of my favorite things. I love the ability to choose wisely and then just stay committed to that. It's, it is such a distraction to entertain ideas right in the middle of executing and getting something you've already decided. And you've never even given chance for that, that thing to live and grow and have an impact on the business. And so... For me, I love the discipline. And, and part of that is just acknowledging that you can never, no matter how much money, how many team members you have, you just don't have enough time to do it all. And so what are the bets? And so a lot of it goes up front in let's choose the right things first. And so there should be significant discipline in that effort. Not to the point that you're, you're slow or not to the point that you're not executing or that you're waiting for a perfect plan, but you have to take the information you have learn and then decide. And then once you've decided, then it's all about execution at that point and being laser focused. One of my favorite uh, authors is Greg McEwen, who talks about essentialism and talks about the power of focusing on, on one thing and moving that thing forward feet and miles rather than inches when we're spread thin and we focus in too many different directions. I think it, it's important to, to at least acknowledge that you have to make a decision, at least acknowledge that there are trade-offs, not try to embrace all things. I think being good financial stewards, there's natural constraints there. And so you are limited by finances. And so that there's a natural ability to potentially focus that way. I think that the, the same thing is true. As you have more success, you also have more opportunities. And so this discipline becomes even more important as you go. And, and part of that is really, again, going back to values. Like values are the things that help make us make our decision. And then as is often talked about, having a North Star. You know, what is it that we're trying to become? What is it that we're after? Do we understand our market? There's always temptation to bleed over into other markets or bleed over into other products. And those should be weighed carefully. They should be measured. And then we should figure out ways to either execute against select ones or then, or stay focused on the things that, that matter most. And now comes the fun part. This flexibility to focus on what we feel is most important to determine our own destiny, to be thoughtful and deliberate, turns out doesn't only influence how we build products, but is also applied across all disciplines of the organization. You might see where I'm going with this, but in short, the ability to own our own destiny has allowed us to really embrace the value of do the right thing and make it an integral part of the culture. It influences the product, the customer, but especially our employees. 
To help illustrate what this looks like, I asked Ben and Ryan to share a few examples of what do the right thing has looked like for them over the years. And it was interesting to see how broad the application really is. We'll share a few. The first example is probably more along the lines of what you expected coming into this topic, good old fashioned integrity. This has happened a couple of times over 13 years where we brought somebody in and as we pulled them in, we realized that pay that they agreed to come for was actually outside of our band. So, you know, you could look at that and say, oh, we're getting a deal. You know, we're actually paying less than, than what we're paying anybody inside the organization for that role. But it's absolutely no, like there is not even a thought on that. It's like, no, hey, so-and-so, we made a mistake. We actually should have started you at this pay rate. This is, you know, this is what we do. And obviously it's huge, you know, people are excited or whatever, but, but for us, it's one of those things that no, that's the right thing to do. We have to show up for people, whether they know it or not, right? This goes back to integrity of, am I going to live the values, whether somebody's looking or notices or not? And so some of those examples are a little bit hard to share just because you don't want to kind of thump your chest and say, Hey, look at me. I'm this standard of excellence as it relates to integrity. That's not the intent. But the thought is, you know, there are stories like that where we, we try to do the right thing no matter what. Integrity is absolutely a part of do the right thing and is the most common sense aspect of the value. The next example is a form of integrity we might not think about right off the bat and has to do with admitting to and learning from our mistakes. There's also an oops email, right, where we have the oops email that I made a mistake. Here's the mistake I made. And the time, the time that comes to mind is Jeanette Martin. Jeanette has been here for seven or eight years. She's the director of software engineering, and she is exceptional. And she sent this oops email out years and years ago when we had first started doing it, and it was just magic. And she had made a mistake on one of the reports that went live. It says, the code that I introduced introduced a bug that would cause job applicants from this site to overwrite a previous job applicant that had applied from the site and it caused upwards of 1,400 job applicants over this time to be lost to various customers. That, that hurt, and it was hard. But being able to raise your hand and say, I made this mistake, this is what I did, and this is how we can prevent it in the future, and I'm sorry, that is a huge win in doing, doing the right thing. It's one thing to freely admit your mistakes. It's a whole other thing to be called out on them. It takes courage and commitment to do the right thing for both the person doing the calling out and the person being called out to be humble enough to accept accountability and change for the better. There's one in particular where there was an employee who was a little distracted. And every time another employee would walk by their computer, they would see that they were, you know, looking at Facebook or just surfing, but they weren't focused and they weren't working. And at Bamboo HR, like quality life matters. No, we don't want to be in the office at nine, 10 o'clock at night screwing around. We want to come in, work really, really hard, really, really focused way, and then go home and enjoy that, that personal parts of our, part of our lives that matters so much. And so it just started to annoy this, this employee kept walking by his computer and seeing that this person was, you know, Facebook, social media, whatever they were doing. And so they told, they actually told Ryan and they said, Hey, this is going on. And just Ryan looked at them and said, well, well, what are you going to, what are you going to do about it? It's like me, what do you mean? Me? It's like, well, yeah, you, you work with this person. You're the one that's walking by their desk. Go have the conversation, invite him to have this conversation. And imagine as, as humans, it's so hard to go to someone and say, Hey man, you're not working and it's hurting the team. And it hurts me and kind of point a finger and say, you got to change. This is wrong. 
and, and the ability to do that, that requires a little bit of courage, right? Well, the conversation was had and it was received in such a thankful way. It was like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry that I was behaving in this way because no one wants to hurt everyone else. Everyone wants to, you know, if they don't, they shouldn't be here, right? But we want to, we want to help each other learn and grow. And if we're, if we're taking away from that in any way, then we got to change. And finally, doing the right thing can also mean calling someone out for good work they're doing. We're with each other for so much of the day, and we're impacted by the things that happen at work and take those things home to our families, our loved ones, to, you know, even just carrying that stress personally. So if I'm cared about at work, then that makes a world of difference. And then it unlocks all kinds of goodness as far as my performance goes. You know, one of the things that, and this is a little, I, I acknowledge this is a little bit self-serving, but, you know, I worked for Ben at a previous company. And I remember really vividly being there. I was working really hard on something. And the next day, um, after working so hard on the thing, there was a little post-it note on my computer screen. And all it said was, thank you. And Ben's chicken scratch of, of a handwriting. And I still have that little post-it note today because it so, meant so much that he actually acknowledged that what I did was hard, what I did was meaningful, that he actually cared about it. And can you imagine? I mean, the simple words of thank you written on a post-it note um, had such an impact at that time. That little touch of humanity is such a great example of how we can impact the lives of the people we work with by thoughtfully doing the right thing. There are opportunities all around us, whether it's calling out someone's great work or holding someone accountable for their sake and the sake of the team or admitting our mistakes and sharing learnings so others don't do the same or simply exercising some good old-fashioned integrity. Here's Ben and Ryan with some parting thoughts. It feels like we, we talk about values or these cliche words like culture matters and we care about our people and do the right thing. But that's just the surface and really, really providing clarity around what those words mean is important. So a couple of years ago, we were invited to present on culture at Great Place to Work in California and had an opportunity to go and share our views on culture. So I did all this research on, on the definition of culture and corporate culture and company culture. And as I, as I read all of these different definitions, what it really came down to was that culture is kind of a culture. We use the word culture is really a proxy for values right? And what those values mean. And for me, as I read all these definitions, I came to this conclusion, like it really sounds like all of these things are saying culture is how we treat people. So how we treat people in the workplace, those ethics and those values, yeah, they matter. Things like concern and respect for others. Like it's genuine. It's not the lip service BS that you hear about. No, do you really care? Okay, show me, show me how you care. What are, what are you doing? How are you having these conversations? What are the actions and steps and things that you're doing to build people, to care about your people? So concern and respect for others, for sure. Honesty and personal integrity. Accountability is a big one we talk about all the time. What is accountability? Let's embrace it. Let's embrace accountability. That's how we're going to grow. So do the right thing is really obvious. It's one of those things that everybody should ascribe to. But yet there's failures over and over and over where people are focused on the wrong thing. And then when hard decisions come along, then it's really easy to make a poor choice, uh, a choice in favor of the dollar or a choice in favor of the business at the expense of the customer, the employee. Do the right thing was intended from the beginning to kind of espouse that broader do the right thing. That, that idea that 
you don't just go into business to make a dollar, but you you go to to win the hearts and minds of customers, to win the hearts and minds of employees. And so when we held up our choices, our kind of direction against do the right thing, we had this opportunity to say, okay, what is that broader view? And time after time, you know, during the course of building this business over the last 13 years, there's been a chance to say what is best for Bamboo. And that has always meant what is best for the customer, what is best for the employee. Ben Peterson and Ryan Sanders co-founded Bamboo HR in 2008. They currently serve as co-chairs of the board of directors. In addition, we re-recruited Ryan to serve as our chief product officer today. They remain active in building and shaping the strategy, culture, and vision of the company. Here's part two, a new addiction. When people see that you're listening and you're paying attention and you're doing things about it, like right now, which is the ultimate show of respect from one human being to another, that you're listening and you're going to change path and alter your point of view based on what they said, the place takes off. It just automatically takes off. This is Michael C. Bush, CEO of Great Place to Work, the global authority on workplace culture. Great Place to Work has surveyed over 100 million employees since 1992, and from those insights, has been able to define what makes a great place to work. So right out of the gate, I had to ask, what makes an organization a great place to work? What do those organizations have in common? Everything is built upon a foundation of trust. That's it. You know, without trust, there is no innovation. There is no inclusion. There is no collaboration. There is no sense of belonging. There is no happiness. All these things that we say that we want, it just doesn't happen if there's not trust of the person that you work for and the people that you work with. And then when you've got that trust above a certain level, you actually care for the people you work with and you care for the, the person you work for and vice versa, which is what drives high performance. This principle of being purpose-driven and then of creating trust throughout your organization and relying on that trust to keep you going, even in hard times, has really been put to the test these last couple of years. But turns out, for those organizations built on those foundations, it's paid off. For companies that won in 2020 and are still winning, they did the right thing. They abandoned the old way of thinking and dumped the Excel spreadsheets and decided, we're going to do what's best for our people. That's it which is a hell of a thing to do. Now you can look back and go, yeah, that was the right thing to do. And everybody's telling stories about it and doing podcasts and whatnot. But in that moment, it was a hell of a thing to know whether your place was going to survive or not. The economy, the stock market was crashing. Everything looked bad. People were babbling that we were looking to to get directions. And so what do we do? Some companies said, we're going to take care of our people. We're going to take care of our people and we're going to personalize it. It's not these broad things about what you can and can't do. We're going to listen to everybody. Okay, you got kids, you got pets, you got an elder parent, you know, you've got these things, you got to start late, you're going to extend your workday. And they didn't. Okay, everybody on a check-in well-being call at 6 a.m., which was just some perverse way of making sure a butt was in the seat, you know, which, which some companies did. So companies stood on one of your values doing the right thing. Because once they got there, and even the, the, the managers were like, what do you mean doing the right thing? We got to stay in business. Look, you can't sort of do the right thing. You have to think about the values and about your people and know it's personal for each one of them. I don't care if you have 77,000, 900, or 100. It's personal, which means you have to be flexible and decide you're going to follow them in this moment in time. And you have no idea if it's going to wreck your business or not. And they're going to be making Harvard Business School case studies about how you blew up the company. 
You don't know in that moment, but you stand on your value. And the great companies that did that, I got scores of them, that's what they did. They decided that they were going to do that with no caveats. They let their managers and supervisors know, do what you need to do. Take care of them right now. Get them what they need. And uh, we're going to stand behind you. And we know you're trying to figure it out as well while trying to take care of your family. But uh, listen to them and let's just get them what they need. And they were rewarded and are still being rewarded. Turns out when doing the right thing, you can't do it halfway. If we didn't understand this before 2020, we certainly understand it now. I love Michael's comment on closing the spreadsheet for a second to think about the humans and figure out what's the right thing. It's all too easy to let other priorities put people matters on the back burner or even confuse ourselves with data and rationalize poor choices. But as leaders, you've got to have the backbone to step up and do what's right for your people, always. Before his time at Great Place to Work, Michael served on the White House Business Council for President Barack Obama. And as Michael and I dug into the discussion, a story popped up from his time there that really illustrated this principle of doing what's right for your people, despite other priorities. Well, one of the things that I remember was being there at a meeting, and then he did this thing where most presidents do this for a month or two and then they stop, but Barack would do this weekly thing of talking to the employees at the White House every week. Uh, the weather wasn't good, and he comes out on the this warehouse loading dock, and employees come and gather. And he's like, hey, everybody, just you know, want to say a few things. He goes, I don't have much time today. And somebody said, hey, would you like to check this out? I said, of course. And so I check it out, and he goes, look, there have been some texting going around about meeting up at the W, at the bar at the W. And he goes, look, by the way, we get all those texts. And number two, the people did not send us here to be meeting up at the W. So let's stay focused on why we're here. And he walked through why the administration was there. And then he left. And I was like, whoa. Later, I found out they were ordering the strike to get Osama bin Laden. So this cat was busy. A defining moment in his presidency, because it went the way it went, but you didn't know. And he took the time out to come out and lead his team and to get them focused. So I and, think and to give that, them and to give them feedback on their purpose and their mission for being there. That's impressive. That's right. That's right. We're all busy, but can you imagine? Oh, but by the way, Chief of Staff, I got to go talk to my people about <laughs> these hookups at the W. You, you know, and and he did it. But the way he reminded people about why they were there, he was like, "Let me tell you why the people voted us here," and he just walked through it. He got right back to the purpose and what we were here to do. And it was so important. He walked out of something that was real important because this was important, you know, and he could hold those two things at the same time. It made me see time differently. But he did the right thing in that moment, both, you know, for the country and the world and for his people, that his people were still that important. And it's not a one or the other. So I just learned so much from that moment. It doesn't matter if you're an HR director, a CEO, a CFO. You can find reasons to not engage with your people. It would have been easily justified for President Obama to cancel a staff meeting considering his other to-do items that day. But we learned something from how he prioritized the time that he had to engage with his people. One of the ways we should be engaging with our people is by listening to their feedback. Seeing as how Michael and Great Place to Work are in the survey business, we dug into this a little deeper. And one thing about my priority list, there's some things on it I really don't like. And that's one of them. Let me tell you why. Because we're in the survey business, obviously. We survey employees and we survey our employees. And so I have that 
feeling that we all have, which is the survey closes on Friday. Do I look at the results? I'll tell you, Brad, I don't do it on Friday, man, because I don't want to wreck my weekend. Okay, <laughs> so I come back. <laughs> it's like I, I, I plug in Sunday night and take a look. And um, the thing about purpose-driven leaders, and I am one, is I'm not looking at where I'm ahead of the benchmarks and whatnot. I mean, I know those things are important, but I'm going where it's the other way. And there's always something. There's always something. And when you see it, it's a pit in my stomach to see that some people, for whatever reason, are not having this connection with their people leader or how they can contribute to innovation, whatever it might be. But you have to wade through that water, you know, because this is listening. This is what it's all about. And you have to look at that data, being willing to let go of all the things that make it hard for you to let that data in. Well, they just haven't been here long enough. Oh, they must have missed the communication session. You want to dismiss it all. And my brain naturally does it. But then I have to let it in and then think about, you know, what it is that I need to do differently as a leader, you know, as well as my team. Right before this, I was talking to a chief people officer from a great company, technology company. And they had just done their survey. And what they found is that there was a group of employees who felt like they had no idea how to get promoted at the company. It was a mystery to them. And these happened to be mainly black and brown employees. And so they took a look at that data, they double clicked, sifted through, and found that this was particularly true for a group of black and brown employees who had been with the company more than five years and had never had a promotion. So they were like, oh, okay. Well, we see why they feel this way. Anyway, went through the data and then decided to have a meeting with all their people leaders saying, look, we got these people who have been here like five years. They're getting pretty good reviews, but none of them have been promoted. I want to take a look at why and see what's going on and develop a professional plan for each one of them, which they did. And then they moved that through the rest of the company. You know, they started there and then moved this. Everybody's going to have a professional plan. If Michael, CEO of the company that is the global authority on workplace culture, is identifying gaps in his leadership, what about everyone else? Well, obviously, we all have gaps. So what's holding us back? Well, Michael has done the research and has seen the data and had some great insights. It's fear for sure. Most business leaders have been successful, and that's how they got there. And they got successful a certain way. They were mentored by people who it's shareholder value. That's it. Their mentors are that. They think you keep score and that if you want friends and close relationships, you do it outside of work. You don't want to care about your people. It's a job. And if they want to know if the true showing of care is, the paycheck doesn't bounce. That proves I care about you. So there are people who have been brought up that way and have been successful. They've been successful, which means they got stuff. Why should I change? This is working for me. Well, they're being challenged at this moment because they know how to talk about earnings. They know how to talk about market share. They know how to talk about product development and innovation. They know how to talk about quality assurance. You know, they know how to talk about employee benefits packages. There are certain things where they're just super comfortable because they know, they know. What we're talking about around people and caring and connecting with people very different from them, they don't know much about that. So now we're in the unknown. And this is the stuff they don't want to do. I've sat with them where these highly confident people that you could put on stage and will crush it. And then you say, well, you know, that thing happened on the White House stairs and the people want to know what you think. What? Well, you know, this thing happened on the White House stairs. I'm not going to judge it either way. But something happened on the White House stairs 
And the people want to know what you think. Oh, and this confident person not knowing what to do because they're in the land of the unknown. They actually have to find a way to share what they believe in. What do they really believe in? Because they've been able to mask that with these quantitative metrics and numbers. And so they're unsure and they're fearful and they're uncomfortable and they'd really just like to run back and can somebody just turn on Excel again? You know, so I can just move some cells around and do some macros or whatnot because I'm really comfortable there. But now you're taking me in this realm where I have to talk about what I believe and which means I got to think about it for some leaders. So this is new. This is different. They're going to make mistakes. They've had a life of publicly making very few. They're going to say the wrong thing. They're going to get backlash. They just like to tweet things that everybody likes. Well, now some people aren't going to like it. And they don't like that feeling because they've had a track record of everybody loving what they do, pretty much. And now all of a sudden they're getting this, this other stuff, including when they get home. And their son's like, I can't believe you said that. And what do you mean? Well, you didn't say anything about this. You know, this happened, Dad. And I don't know what you do, but it's kind of weird that you don't talk about these things. And I've seen all of this. I've seen all of it, and I've seen it change leaders as a result. So it's uncomfortable for all of us, but the true satisfaction of making a quarter, it doesn't last that long. The true satisfaction of your people being fired up, that's a whole different feeling. It's a completely different feeling. It's a life-changing feeling, and it becomes the new addiction. As Michael and I dived into this new world where leaders can't just hide behind the numbers anymore, where they're being challenged and asked to share what they believe in, one of the areas of focus was inevitably diversity. For the organizations and leaders out there who are falling short here, but who want to do the right thing, I asked Michael to share his expertise on how to get started, how to begin moving in the right direction. I run the company that I run, and we're probably one of the most diverse companies in America. When you look at our, our numbers and what we're doing, what happens is when you hire somebody from an underrepresented group who's differently abled, they actually often have people in their LinkedIn profile that they're connected to from the same group. And when they trust you, they're going to bring their people. That's the secret weapon. And you don't have to pay recruiters, you know, so it's even better. So there's a way here of the power of trust. And so, you know, I would say for those who are listening, small and medium-sized companies, I love you for sure. You are my people. Problems in the world are complicated. The reason we handle them so well is the diversity that I have and the fact that people feel like their word matters and we care about what they have to say. And we're obsessed with that bad news in the survey. And so that's why people are surprised we're 103 people because we punch way over our weight because of what I've got. You know, these different points of view that I have, they could leave tomorrow and make more money. You know, no doubt about it, but they don't. You know, they, they absolutely don't because, you know, they're committed to it. So don't beat yourself up if you're listening. You can probably get your gender thing going. You might be a little thin as you move up in your organization. And you want to take a look at that because you are missing some talent. You are just missing some talent. I know you got maybe a bunch of guys all around you, but you know a couple of them are on the B team. You know that. Think if you replace that person who's on the B team with an A team woman. That's really the opportunity and the mindset you need to have. If you're doing it for like moral reasons, I wouldn't waste time with that. I'm a business person. This brings us full circle, back to being thoughtful, deliberate, and purpose-driven leaders. People want to know that their leaders are awake in the world and see things in the world. They want to know that their leaders 
know that um, May 25th was the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And you might imagine why they might know that that happened. So they just want to know that their, their leaders are conscious. They're awake. They're aware. Because if you're not, you can't be purpose-driven. You can get that EBITDA growth or that free cash flow number up, but you just can't really think about how the organization can actually improve society, which is what a purpose-driven leader does. But that's not for everybody. But I think if you're a purpose-driven leader, you find your way and you make mistakes, but you admit that um, these things matter. Um, there might be something like, like I'll tell a CEO, the survey says people are really concerned about the environment and the impact your company has on it. And then the leader is like, yeah, well, that climate change, that's all crap. You know, it's all, okay, but that's not what your people think. And so you can either keep beating your drum and say, well, you know, this is who I am and I don't agree, or you can follow your people. You're going to get the rewards by absolutely by following your people. After all the insights gleaned from our conversation about diversity, about leaders putting aside the spreadsheets and doing the right thing for the humans, I wanted to know one last thing from Michael. I wanted to know how he personally defines great place to work. You know, Brad, my definition is when my alarm goes up, I do hit the sleep. Okay, I admit that. But after that, I'm ready to go. That's a great place to work. I want to get into it. I want to get into it every day. I'm not fantasizing about when I cannot be into it. I'm into it. And these are tough times. I'm into it. Totally into it. And I want that to be true for everybody. Everybody in the company. I want them to want to go to work today. Huge thanks to Michael for taking the time to share his thoughts and insights into doing the right thing. To learn more about Great Place to Work, visit greatplacetowork.com. To hear more from Michael, you can check out his book, A Great Place to Work for All. Lastly, as we wrap up our pilot season of the era, I want to say thank you to all of our amazing guests we've had throughout the episodes, the thousands of listeners for joining the conversation, and the Bamboo HR production team for putting all this content together. I invite you to revisit past episodes you may have missed, rate and comment on the show wherever you listen, and of course, share with other HR and business leaders who care about putting their people first.